whatever you are, whether it's morning as it is here on the East Coast or for Connie and, and, and some of the other, there's here today, um, or whether it's afternoon or perhaps even evening. Uh, it's well, we're glad to that you're back and uh, it's wonderful to see so many of you on, even if it has to be on screen right now for another session of the SPR Meet the Scholars. And it is my absolute great pleasure to have the opportunity to have a conversation today with uh, Professor Constance Halfat from the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. Connie, as she is known to most of us, I would say, is Senior Associate Dean for Research Innovation. She's also the J. Brian Quinn Professor in Technology and Strategy at Dartmouth and Area Chair for Strategy and Management at Tuck. So, uh, Connie really doesn't need an introduction, but I will give you, and it's impossible to really do justice to, to her many, many contributions to the field of strategy, but I will give you just a few highlights from her CV. So Connie did her undergraduate degree at Berkeley and then went to Yale for, uh, for master's degrees and PhD in economics. Uh, before she joined TAC, she had appointments at the uh, University of California, Davis, Northwestern University, and University of Pennsylvania. She, her many contributions to the field of strategy have been recognized through several honors and awards, among which Distinguished Scholar Award by the, uh, from the team division of AOM, the Vipuri Prize in Strategic Management, and, sort of, and, and as a SMS fellow. I think she's known to many as the co-editor of Strategic Management Journal over eight years, Connie just stepped down. I think it was December 2020, so just a couple of months ago. And before that, she was an associate editor or senior editor at Strategic Management Journal, but also at Management Science and Org Science. Connie's impact on the field of strategy has not only been through her tremendous research and many, many publications, but I would say also through her wonderful contributions to editorial roles and, and, and just as importantly, through her mentorship of, of junior scholars. So Connie, it's wonderful to see you this morning and it's a great pleasure to have a conversation, uh, conversation with you. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to ask everyone to, I will stop sharing, and I would like to ask everyone to uh, jump in with questions through chat. I have a few questions that I prepared for Connie myself and we'll, we'll go through those, but then you know, we'll try to incorporate some of your questions and then open it up broadly for, for Q&A. All right, so Connie, just to, to get started, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your background. Can you tell us about where you grew up, um, maybe how you found your path towards academia, what brought you into the, the academia early on and made you stay there? Yeah. First of all, it's really nice you guys to have me. Thank you for the lovely intro. It's great to see so many people here, people I know, people hopefully I'll meet maybe in person. We can do this one of these days. Uh, so thank you guys. Um, let me, uh, and, and thank you particularly for Joe and, and Cindy uh, for doing all the heavy lifting to organize this particular session. Uh, so, all right, so my background. So. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, which actually, if you're a kid, is a great place to grow up. I mean, they were, you just walk down the street, find your friends, go bike riding, it's flat, you know, which actually is a big advantage when you're a kid, right? Um, and then my, my parents moved to the San Francisco Bay Area 
Um, and so uh, when I was about 11, so I grew up there. Uh, I, for many, for most of my life, I'd say until about 15 years ago, people would ask me where I'm from. I'd say I'm from California. So now I finally say I'm from New Hampshire, which is where I live. Uh, so um, I was an econ major at Berkeley. And I remember my first econ class, I had this big old huge book in like this thick, right? The intro textbook. And I actually didn't take it my first year because I was afraid like it would be too hard, you know? And so I thought, well, I should try it out. And I actually really loved it. But I remember these intro books, they tell you about the history of the field, which is something you don't get once you get beyond that. And I remember like reading about some research of James Tobin's and I thought, and, and they talked about what his dissertation was, you know, how he got started. And I was like, oh, maybe it'd be fun to write a dissertation. <laughs> All right, so you can imagine that naivete. Um, but that actually got me thinking about grad school. And, um, and I went to grad school in economics. So I had no idea there was anything called strategy, right? That you could get a PhD in at that point. So, so that, that's how I got started. I thought you did your PhD at Yale. And I, I think I can say for many people, the PhD years are very much formative years. If you look back, what are some of the things, whether ideas or the people you you had a chance to talk to or some events, sort of serendipitous events that influenced how you developed as a PhD student and perhaps even the choice of your dissertation topic? Yeah, so I went to Yale for two reasons. One, I went there because Jim Tobin was there. He's like my idol from, you know, way back when. And the second reason I went there is because really interested in technological change and Dick Nelson was there. And, you know, when I ran around different grad schools, when I was trying to decide where to go, uh, people told me, well, if you want to do technological change, you know, go to Yale because that's where Dick Nelson is. So that's why I went, those two reasons. And so you can imagine those two people were really influential. Uh, and one thing about Yale at the time is, you know, if you go and get an econ degree now in industrial organization economics, you're going to get game theory and asymmetric information and a lot of math. So yeah, what they taught us was actually much more applied stuff. And they also taught us things like evolutionary economics, because Nelson and Winter were there, and they taught us transaction cost economics, which was not a staple at the time in econ departments, still is not, you know. So I had a education that was a little more similar to what you might get in strategy now, except I also got traditional industrial organization economics. Um, so then I wanted to write a dissertation on firms, right? Um, and, um, and how they behave. A part of this actually came out of my undergraduate education where I took a very applied undergraduate course in industrial organization economics, where they went through the history of all these firms and the antitrust and regulation. Um, that they were subject to and how they developed over time. So I thought, okay, I'll, read a, I'll write a dissertation on firms. Well, guess what? Economics is not so good at that, understanding firms. So I went to Tobin and I said, well, I'm kind of interested in understanding how macroeconomic events affect firm behavior. 
I thought, okay, that's a route in, you know, where I can study firms. And he said, well, why don't you look at the oil industry? Because this was the time where oil prices were just going nuts and firms were trying to figure out how to cope. And that's how I got started in oil. You know, so if you don't believe in history dependence from reading the real world, you know, from reading Nelson and Winter, I believe it because I'm still doing oil. (laughs) So it turns out that oil is incredibly high tech on the process technology side, unbelievably high tech. So I wrote a dissertation on how you know, these macroeconomic conditions were affecting firms' investments in capital and in R&D, right, in this really fairly high-tech space in traditional and at that, what were at that time alternative energies, right? So, uh, you know, so the, it's funny because the world comes around to you because at the time nobody, you know, you know, nobody cared about R&D if you can believe it you know, you know, outside of, you know, people like Nelson. Um, and, you know, after the oil crunch went away, people stopped caring about alternative energy. <laughs> so here we are again. All right. So, you know, I'm happy to see the world come back around. Um, and so all those people were influential. The other, the other person I've mentioned is really influential, two of them. One was Sid Winter. Um, and um, he was actually my micro professor first my first professor he hated teaching traditional graduate micro it's you know it's largely math but you know he tried to make it you know a little more applied if you could call it that but so and then I went on to learn a lot of evolutionary economics from from Sid and from Dick but Sid was really focused on firms whereas Dick was a little more focused on the technology so those two folks together were really important for me and the last person was my dis- one of my dissertation advisors, who was uh, Rick Levin, who went on to be the president of Yale University, who is a very applied I.O. economist. Yeah. So that, you know, so that's how I got started. So it sounds like a lot of that, a, a lot of sort of that, those influences happened during your PhD years. Did something similar happen uh, when you were an assistant professor at the several, you know? Some of the other institutions where you spend time? Yeah, I mean, when I think about my career and the influences, it always goes back to people. Mm. And then the ideas that people brought with them. So, you know, what you heard me talk about was the people. So I'm gonna talk about this when I was assistant professor, right? I was really lucky. Uh, I, you know, so some of the really key people, first of all, Sid Winner, I kept in touch with him uh, all the time, partly because. I started out at UC Davis and he had family there. Um, and uh, also then I ended up going down to Washington DC a lot to use my R&D data. And by then Sid had moved down there. So it was really easy for me to keep in touch. And so we would go out to lunch and talk about research all the time, an enormous help. And then um, I, when I went out to UC Davis, I went out there partly because I wanted to be in Northern California at the time. And so, Yale, people at Yale had connections with this new business school at UC Davis. And so, uh, and they also said, well, you know, advisor Rick Levin said, I'll put you in touch with David Teese. Yeah. Oh my God. I thought David was a God. So I'm like, yeah, okay. We'll, we'll go talk. Sure. Okay. You know, <laughs> so, uh, and so David, he had a huge influence on me. You know, he's, he, he, he was probably the reason I left economics to go to strategy. He just kept badgering me, Connie, you're in the wrong field. Connie, you're in the wrong field. There are all these people in the field of strategy interested in what you're interested in. Nobody in economics is interested Mm -hmm. in what you're interested in. 
president. Well, not nobody, but not not that many. You need to come to strategy. So, you know, and um, and so that was hugely important. And then he said to me, hey, by the way, Northwestern's got a job and you need to apply for it. You, you know, you don't say no to David Teese when you're an assistant professor. So I'm like, okay, I'll apply for this job. And Cynthia Montgomery and Berger Wernerfeld and Rafi Amit were at Northwestern. And, you know, they were looking for people with econ degrees to convert to strategy. And so I was poster child number one and Margie Petteroff was poster child number two. Uh, and along the way, when I went there, you know, Cynthia and Berger started hammering me about the resource-based view of the firm, which I'd never heard of, right, which is pretty early at the time. And I thought, oh, maybe this is something that I could, like, think about for my work. And at the same time, when I was out at Davis, this is when David came up with the idea for dynamic capabilities. And so, I mean, I had that burned into my brain. And, and so that was all hugely important. And then I went uh, to Wharton uh, because Northwestern was having what I would call some identity problems uh, in strategy and, and Cynthia Berger left for that reason. So um, I thought, well, maybe I'll look around. And so when I went to Wharton, Dan Leventhal was there. I did, you know, which was hugely influential to talk to him and on Harbir Singh. And then Sid Winter showed up again a couple of years later. So again, I learned, in, and Bruce Kogut also was a huge influence. I mean, you know, Dan and Bruce were really interested in, in evolutionary thinking. So, I mean, I learned a lot from them. And then Harbier was more on the RBV side. And again, very informative and creative scholar. So all these people, you know, I still use everything I learned from these people today and their work, of course. But, you know, there's kind of no substitute for talking to people. You can read their research. You don't actually know what is important to them and what they really think is key about what's in their research until you talk to them. It, it, you know, so I was just, I consider myself enormously lucky. Mm. Just really enormously lucky to have had all these people to talk to. So building on precisely that point, what, what is it that you're focused on right now? And how do, you, how do you actually choose your next project? And have you changed the process through which you, you, you decide on what your next project should be? Um, hmm. Well, I'm always looking for things where I can learn more about my ideas. Hmm. So in one sense, I wouldn't be in this profession if it weren't for the ideas, right? Otherwise, yeah, you can do all kinds of stuff. You can pump out papers, but why, why do this, right? If that's all you're gonna do, I mean, you can make a lot more money, right? And maybe have an easier life in some sense, right? Like we're always on, we're always working, you know? So it's the idea. So I'm always looking for something that'll advance my ideas, right? And, and I, got, I get ideas from doing research, right? So those are the, you know, it's like, well, I've learned this, but hmm, what am I missing about this picture? You know, oh yeah, or I get an insight. And that drives my next project. So I'm always looking for projects where I can learn more about the things that are motivating me. So for example, I'm really interested in doing more empirically with my idea about resource redeployment. 
right? That's something I thought about, you know, I came up with, it was like, you know, it was just a light bulb went off after I heard Kathy Eisenhardt give a paper years ago. Um, and, you know, like, so there are people, you know, unfortunately I have Tim and Samina who are here, who've been my partners in crime and particularly Tim really pushing on this, you know, uh, because it's not something you can do single-handedly with some of these ideas, but I'm always, I'm looking to do, so I'm always on the lookout for people who want to do more empirical research on that. Uh, I'm still interested in my ideas about vertical integration, uh, you know, and why some firms vertically integrate, stay integrated and some don't, which I did with Miguel Campo Rombato and Org Science. There's always a time dimension in a lot of my work. How do firms deal with their resources and their capabilities over time, right? And so, and that comes from the evolutionary perspective. It comes from the tension between flexibility and rigidity that I'm interested in. Um, you know, so I'm always looking for things that can help me push that forward. And the other thing I'm interested in is the tension between individual and organizational influences on organization outcomes. And so uh, again, I'm on the lookout for things like that. So what I, I'm on the lookout for people and data that might be promising for that, you know. And the latest thing that I'm looking for is any empirical ways to think about shaping uh, the external environment. And by this, I don't I mean like fundamentally reshaping the payoff structure for mm -hmm. all organizations. So that's the other thing I'm now on the lookout for. And the reason I, I, I've been interested in this question for like since the early nineties, partly from being at Yale, hearing everybody talk about co-evolution between firms and their external environment with no sense of like, what's the, this is a chicken and egg problem. I can't get my hands around what's, you know, where's this, where's cause and effect in this whole thing. And, and it was always very diffuse. And so um, my work with Giovanni Gavetti and Luigi Marengo and Strategy Science, we were able to start making some progress. Um, so again, you know, these things all go together. Um, but so that's, I look for things where I can learn more and, and dig into the, the ideas that I have. You mentioned earlier just how important talking to people is to to really get to the bottom of of the idea itself, right? And the sort of the, that really key nugget of of insight that perhaps doesn't always come through as much as uh, as we'd wanted uh, in in the written work. Uh, Gwen Lee uh, just asking on chat, like when if talking to people is not as easily available, especially to PhD students, yeah. uh, what would you recommend? What is your advice to people who do not have easy access? Well, you can talk to your advisors because you know they're more steeped in the literature. So my advice is don't just read the literature. Talk to other people who, you know, talk to your fellow grad students. What are they saying in this? Talk to your advisors because your advisor is going to talk to other people. You know, this is a big stream of people knowing people, right? And how are people interpreting the literature? So the big advice is not necessarily talk to the authors because you can't always do that, but talk, talk to other people about these ideas. Don't just read the literature and try and infer from what's on the written page. That, that's really the advice I would give. So <laughs> Gwen's got the thumbs up, thanks. 
Um, yeah, thanks, Asim, for share, sharing the, um, the paper on shaping. And I think you're you're putting a few more for links in the chat for everyone else to to access if they'd like to. Uh, so if it, I'm, I'm taking away from what you said so far that there are three key ingredients to to keeping to maintaining momentum in your research. One is this belief that an idea is never finished, that there's more to always discover and always sort of bring forward to the field. Two is that data is always key and you're also the initiator and founder of the five project and I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that. And then three, it's collaborators and co-authors, uh, which are incredibly important in just, again, keeping that momentum going. Can you tell us a little bit more about your, your five project? Yeah, that, you know, I feel badly about that because doing all these other stuff I've ended up doing like SMJ, I haven't, you know, I've been very slow loading data sets up, but that came out of, before I started being an SMJ co-editor, you know, I do think that I, you need theory, you need ideas, but honestly, you need to go to the real world, either qualitative or quantitative data. Uh, and actually, sometimes you need to study these things without, you know, hypothesis testing because that will that's like looking under the lamppost sometimes maybe you need to actually you know ask a well-informed question and, and think more broadly but what i realized is i think one of the things that strategic management brings to the academic endeavor is that we collect unique data you know either public available data that's requires quite a bit of work to put into some sort of usable form or hand collected and a lot of it is still hand collected or scraping off the web or whatever these really unique data sets right it's like a claim to fame and i thought well we're collecting all these data sets and no one gets to reuse them again how, how crazy is this right <laughs> you know couldn't we make this available as a, a public good and I thought well you know you need to give people an advantage an opportunity to get them you know several studies out of their data right but after that if they're not going to use it maybe people could add to these data or use you know use them in other studies so the idea of the five project was to facilitate that I said look you know we'll load these up we'll do the work for you we'll help you with documentation because it needs to be user-friendly it'll be open um and so there are several, I managed to get several people on board with this. Um, and so we were able to jumpstart it and, and yeah, I've been able to add a few data sets here and there. What I learned over time is that with older data, particularly the old data where people don't, didn't have it all computerized easily, they don't have the documentation the files are in you know, a format we can't use anymore easily. And so that actually has been a struggle. Um, and um, I do have some data sets I'm eventually hoping to load up. They just take a long time, you know, and you need to get co-author permissions. It turns out to be more of a mess than you think. So what's much more promising is to get people who have created their data sets like in the last 10 years and have good records and everything's in you know nice machine readable form and and so this is a lot more promising so where i've really been able to make traction is smj started this open data badge um 
opportunity. And some people have wanted to take advantage of it and you have to load up your data on open access website and some people have chosen to use fives. Um, so like uh, Brent Goldfarb and Samdeep Palai have this wonderful data set on the oil, auto industry that's up there now. Um, so that's the kind of thing I'm hoping for to build a community you know, where you can go look for data sets. So people are using these data sets for now are largely teaching, you know, grad student teaching where they're, ah, we need a data set, you know, where the students can run something. But, you know, some of these are, a few of them are more up to date and you could add to them or use them. But that was the idea. I'm hoping once I get out from under the rest of my SMJ decisions and some of my admin stuff at Dartmouth, that um, I'd be able to go back to the five project and make more headway with it because I would really like to have um, a resource that people could use and add to going forward. Louise was just asking uh, on that point, uh, what's your advice to younger scholars who want to publish a few papers on their data before sharing it and when should they, when, when should they share the data openly? Yeah, when you think you sort of, you know, gotten 80% out of it, 90% out of it, what you think you're going to get. You know, it takes people a while to use your data, right? They're going to add to it, whatever. And besides, they have to think of what to do with it. And they're not necessarily going to think of your idea, right? So I would say once you feel like you've gotten, you know, a large portion of it, but you'd like to do something for the community. Also, you might find co-authors that way because sometimes people will come to you and say, I have an idea, but I don't know these data that well. And, you know, are you interested? So there might actually be some upside to doing that. Yeah, I remember at some point you mentioned that it would be wonderful for, for one of these sort of public forums, whether it's AOM or SMS or maybe sort of smaller, smaller groups to, to allow people to pitch their data Right. Some some somebody has occasionally, a, you know, a, a very. A very advantageous in with a firm or with to a data set and but they don't always know how to make the most of it. And maybe that's something that, that, that we can all think about what's the right way to facilitate the matching in the academic field of, of between between access to data and and big ideas that can be answered. I, I'd like to, to, to ask you about the strategy field more broadly. You've seen the field, the field evolve over the years and you, saw, you, you spend a lot of time trying to understand it, the various phenomena in it from different theoretical perspectives. So right now today, what are some of the most interesting phenomena emerging that you are studying or that you think others in the strategy field should study? Oh boy. Um, you know, I hate to tell people what they should study. You know, you should study what you're interested in, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing about strategy is it's, you know, something Dick Rommel mentioned years ago, and he's right. He's like, he said, you know, it's a field, he put it in less, you know, he's in more skeptical terms, but basically a field that follows what firms are doing, right? What are the big problems that firms are confronting? That is what we tend to study, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what are they confronting today? Well, tech, all right? I mean, am I telling you something you don't know? No, non-market issues, you know, are big. You know, there's a lot of pressure, some in the US, much more in Europe, um, 
on you know the natural environment in particular you know i think that so clearly those things are going to get studied anyway right i think the question is to really try and understand deeply what the firms are doing and why right and and you know because we don't understand that it's really hard to give advice right it to the extent that you care about advice right some of us don't actually care about advice we just want to understand which honestly i think is fine but other people would like to give advice which i think is useful and if you don't understand really at the root cause of what's going on you're going to give it bad advice basically right so um so I, I think those are two things i mean well what, what am i interested in i'd like to see more work on shaping you know to, to be you know <laughs> to, you know let's just keep hammering you know one thing i've learned over the years is if you're interested in something you have just got to keep saying it over and over and over again <laughs> Right. Till maybe a few people go, oh, what's this? Maybe we should think about it. <laughs> you know. But you know, um, and and the other thing I think is, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Like um, in this quest to sort of understand what firms are doing, we uh, sometimes forget about the basics. Mm. You know, and I really think like so. My basics are uh, resources and capabilities, right? Um, other people have other basics like rivalry or competition, right? But I think we tend to forget about the basics when we answer these questions and ask what more can we learn about these basics rather than just chasing the next phenomenon, you know, with the latest, you know, way of thinking about it. And so I would really like to see people integrate some of the basics, resources and capabilities. What do we know about diversification? <laughs> you know, there's a heck of a lot of stuff in these new phenomena like tech that involve diversification. They're like missing in action. <laughs> I mean, in the literature on tech, every once in a while I see a paper that mentions, you know, that is on diversification in tech. I'm like, yeah, these tech companies, Amazon, why does Amazon look like this? You know, oh, well, you know, how could I, you know, does this make any sense from what we know about diversification, resources and capabilities? Why aren't there more studies on this? <laughs> I, I really think we need to take these phenomena and link them back to our core and think what can we learn more about the core and about the phenomena at the same time. So can, can I push a little bit more on that, that idea? Because I know that one of the things that, that you have fully embraced at, at SMJ is this idea of replication and just uh, sort of confirming and existing theories in the context of new phenomena or with new, with new data. Do you think we need a lot more of that going forward rather than trying to reinvent the wheel every single time we write a paper? Oh, I'm a big fan. All right, so uh, I have been on record as saying something that some might get taken out of context, but I'll say it again, novelty is overrated, right? The notion that every paper must have brand new theory and have some magnificent new result. I mean, this is crazy. We need cumulative knowledge building in this field, right? Otherwise, I mean, let me ask the really basic epistemological question. How can we say that we know anything, right? You have got to build cumulative knowledge, right? And, and by the way, this does come out of my research, right? <laughs> my interest in path dependence and evolution and, and learning, right? But um, 
for that, you need, you know, so replication to my mind is just one, one part of that building cumulative knowledge, right? And we called it quasi-replication in that special issue, the idea that you're going to try and take a prior study, hopefully one that's well-cited, not, you know, not, you know, so we can build on the knowledge and say, well, how well does this transfer to another setting, another time period, uh, an industry that maybe if you're looking at a tech industry, a different industry that involves a lot of tech, but maybe a little has some other, it's not the same technology. Or mm -hmm. even what if you update it with more uh, recent methods, right? Or, uh, you know, more recent ways of constructing variables. Might help us learn what we know and what we don't know and actually open up new things to think about. So I don't view replication as simply oh, the old result does or doesn't hold up. First of all, one study cannot tell you that, right? One replication can't tell you that. But it might open up new ways of thinking, oh, this did hold up and that didn't. Hmm, I wonder what else we could look at. That's part of cumulative knowledge building. So that, that's what I think. And also building the cumulative knowledge, it does tend to give you new ideas. So they are a basis for new theory. But new theory can grow out of trying to build cumulative knowledge. They're not necessarily antithetical. Right. So that's how I view replication. It's a tool in the toolkit. So thinking both about what you just said and your, your work as a, you know, as a researcher, so your own, your own work, but also all the, the hundreds or maybe thousands of papers you've seen as an editor. I'm going to ask you the question that I'm pretty sure you've been asked a hundred times at least. What do you think makes a great paper and what is sort of the difference between a good paper and what uh, and a great paper and how has your opinion of how what makes a good paper change or a great paper change over time yeah i don't think my opinions change that much of what makes a great paper you know maybe let me say what makes a good paper because great papers are hard to write Okay, I mean, you know, we should all be so lucky to write one great paper in our life. I'm happy with just some good papers, all right? You know, so what makes a good paper? I think good paper A, an idea, right? I mean, and, and this is, you know, does go to part of the advice thing, uh, but, you know, methods are, yeah, you need good methods, but without a good idea, nobody's going to read the paper. Right. So what? Right. And a good idea doesn't have to be like some amazing new thing. It has to be something interesting and, you know, somewhat relevant to how firms operate. Right. And their performance outcomes. Right. You don't need performance DV in every paper. Right. But it needs to be relevant to that and need something, something interesting. Right. Um, and, you know, what's interesting? Well, okay, maybe you should ask your colleagues, do you find this interesting, right? Does this help us learn more, you know, in a maybe a not completely obvious way? Um, a replication would be a, an exception to that, right? But for other papers, you know, something interesting um, about what firms are doing, how they do it, you know, but it doesn't have to be some massively, you know, amazing new thing. Um, and like I say, it's hard to find interesting. So that's why I would go to your colleagues and say, well, do you think this is interesting? Or here I have this setting. I'm kind of interested in this. You, you know, what do you think about this? See what people like, what resonates. You know. 
what do people want to learn more about? And then triangulate that with what do you want to learn more about? You know, but yeah, so interesting, right? For better or for worse, ill-defined. I, I'd like to ask you one last question. If I can rephrase that a little bit, uh, what would Connie today advise that Connie that went to Yale maybe just a few years ago? What would, what would your, uh, your advice be to your younger self as a sort of starting out in, in the strategy field? Yeah, okay. Well, part of it is don't do what I did, right? So, um, you know, I'm one of these people who's interested in just about everything. It's a, it's a blessing and a curse at the same time, right? So when I first started out, I had all these projects I wanted to do. That, and, and so David T sat me down. He said, okay, what are you working on? Well, so I start telling him and I get partway through my spiel. And he goes, no, 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 no. And I'm like, what do you mean? He says, you can't do all this. He says, and it's completely on these things. How are these things related to each other? You know, I'm like, they have to be related to each other. <laughs> You know, I'm like, oh, he says, yeah, you, 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 you can't, you'll never get any, nobody's going to know what you do or care about it if you don't have a clear theme to your work, right? I'm like, oh, so then he says, so you got to pare this down. So I start paring it down. Okay, and get rid of this project and get rid of that project, you know, and then we finally get to the stuff, you know, I'm like, I still don't know if I can get it down. And so, so finally came to a compromise that I could have two themes in my work, right? So one was going to be like the top management because and how they decided to make investments and, you know, because that came out of my dissertation. And the other was going to be the R&D and technological change. Well, on the face of it, these are not too related looking, all right? So I find, and eventually I ended up stopping doing the managerial resources, you know, because that was how I got to that was through my dissertation combined with Cynthia and Berger hitting me over the head with the RBD, but there weren't enough people interested. And so I kept going with the tech stuff because I had people to talk to, right? So the other thing is, it's not just, you need some themes so you can build your own cumulative knowledge, but you need people to talk to and you need a community to talk to. And the top management folks weren't really interested in internal firm resources and capabilities. Um, and then what happened is I was able to come back around and pull these things together when I wrote the paper with Ron Adner on dynamic managerial capabilities, but that took a long time. And in the meantime, you know, people who are doing the capabilities and the tech didn't know my stuff on top management and vice versa. So just as a career path, don't do that. Find a general theme see if you can pick them for heaven's sake no more than two themes all right but one is better you know and you can always try and fold in your other theme right in some way look for opportunities to do that if you have one you know something else you can't let go of um you know so that's one piece of advice the other is don't lose sight of the ideas i think there's so much premium that i see in young people dealing with methods partly because our methods have gotten more sophisticated. And I remember when I was younger, you know, oh, trying to show my methods were like really state of the art and stuff now that looks old, you wouldn't believe it. I went and talked to econometricians to make sure, you know, <laughs> this was actually okay at the time, you know? So I remember being so focused on the methods and even now I'm still learning new methods because all this stuff is changing and I'm not an econometrician, but I need to be at least competent, right? But that's not the be all and the end all. The methods are root to 
<laughs> the end. It's a means to the end. The end is greater understanding. And for that, you need ideas. For heaven's sakes, the ideas, the ideas, the ideas. What's your idea? It doesn't have to be earth shattering, but what interesting is interesting that you have to contribute. And then take the data and the methods and do the best you can with it. You know, you know, don't let the search for the perfect method crowd out an interesting paper. There is no such thing as a perfect method. Mm. Right? Period. Full stop. <laughs> you know. So that that's that's really what I would suggest. Yeah. All right. I promised everyone that we'll open it up for questions and we will right now. But first, I know we uh, we have a big request from the STR division for cameras to come on for just a minute or so, so that we can take a big screenshot and and use this to remember um, remember today's conversation. Joe, should I take the screenshot? Will you? I will. Um, okay, everyone, uh, please turn on your camera and one, two, three. Perfect. Beautiful smell. Back to you, Cindy. All right. So we have a few questions in in, in the chat already, um, and I will. I would like to uh, start and uh, ask Ali uh, to uh, to to ask his question. He has a question about managerial cognition for Connie. Ali, are you there? Can we call on you? Uh, yes. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you well. Yeah. So thank you so much for this interesting discussion. Uh, it's really very helpful for, for young scholars and PhD students. Um, I, I was wondering where would you see the uh, micro foundations movement going, especially in terms of managerial cognition? Thank you so much. So the you know, the topic of managerial cognition sort of extends beyond the micro foundations movement. Um, uh, you know, there are, there are a range of behavioral strategy scholars interested in the cognition of individuals, and they're not necessarily interested in micro foundations um, per se, you know, the sort of the Phelan and Foss version of micro foundations. Um, I think if you think about micro foundations, it's just the, you know, the, if you mean in terms of the role of the individual in the organization, um, you know, some of that's cognition. Um, I think that um, I'm not quite sure where it's going, that research um, on the cognition of individuals. Um, I would say that not sure the micro, the, the pure micro foundation scholars are actually paying as much attention to it right now. And the work's largely conceptual it partly gets to the difficulty of measuring cognition apart and separating it out from other factors at the individual level. Um, that's a real challenge. Like how do you separate cognition from human capital, for example? Um, so um, I, I guess I would look more at the behavioral strategy scholars who are looking at the cognition of individuals is, is what I would look at rather than the micro foundations folks per se. Um, you know, they have an interest, but I, I think the I would go to the cognition scholars. You know, there are people like Giovanni Gavetti, he does simulations, you know, it's largely theory, but he might give you some ideas for things you could do with it. Um, that's where I would go. Thank you. 
Nick, uh, Nicholas Fogioli has, uh, has a couple of questions in the chat, and one in particular is about resource redeployment. Nick, um, I'm looking for you on the screen, and but feel Hi. free to jump in. I'm sure you're going to. Yeah, thank you. My question is, uh, hi, Connie. My question is about resource redeployment within the field of strategy. Um, where do you see strategy going in response to the pandemic with the resources that we have within the field? Things like funding for tenure lines, PhD programs, new faculty recruitment. How, how do you think it'll change over the next uh, five years or so? Thank you. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm not sure I have a better idea than anybody else about that. Um, uh, I don't know. You know, that's an honest answer. Uh, and, and maybe, I'm not sure the pandemic per se is the issue. I think the issue is finances. Um, and, uh, and what is that going to do? And I mean, I, I think a particularly interesting question is what are schools going to do with, with um, their teaching and their programs, right? You know, so we've learned a, a lot about how to deliver online, right? And this might affect hiring, right? What kind of people you hire. I mean, that, that's possibly something. I mean, I, I can see more direct implications for teaching and types of programs and school is going to be exploring different ways to offer things, different types of programs. And then this might feed back to hiring. This might actually improve finances, right? So, um, because you can reach more people online with online uh, or hybrid programs. So, um, and, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to think that strategy scholars are going to be in demand because maybe we know something about how to adapt to change, you know, and create change. Uh, but, you know, seeing how the academy works, um, you know, you know, the academy likes to keep a balance among fields, right, and, you know, keep the peace. So I'm not sure that we're going to get any special treatment, right? even if we think we might know a little more. Thank you. Nikisha had a question in the chat. I I'd like to bring her into the conversation if she can hear me and can unmute and ask you the question directly, Con. Hi, thank you. Um, so thank you so much, um, Dr. Helfat, for this conversation. So I'm at Baruch College, I'm a second year PhD student. And one of the things that I latched on as you were talking is about writing about, about something that you find interesting and others will find interesting. And I wanted to just get your thoughts on how do you then integrate what you find interesting into the conversation that's happening in your field? Yeah, so I, actually that's a really good question because it's something that I had to deal with, right? Like, because I was interested in R&D before people were interested in R&D strategy, right? Um, for example, right? Or I was interested in the Cape, you know, managerial resources before, you know, people were interested. So. You just have to look for conversations, you know. So I would look for big conversations and say, how could my research fit into this, right? I have what, I know what I'm interested in. I have some ideas. How can I, may, you know, think about these ideas in light of some, a, a big conversation that I see going on? So you have to, you know, you, you what helped me was to triangulate between my ideas and the conversations. And I would often maybe shift my thinking a little bit 
to think, how could I contribute to this conversation? I know there's a link, but how do I make it clearer? And I, it might actually shift the focus of my research a little bit because I wanted to contribute to a conversation. It's really lonely to work on your own. <laughs> I mean, it just, you know, and for me, I don't get any ideas if I'm just talking to myself, either on paper or in, per, you know, in person. So, so you, I needed a conversation and then I would go look where might be a route into this conversation with my ideas, right? And I would actually change my thinking a little bit about what I wanted to contribute and it would shape my ideas a little because I wanted to contribute to a conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Tatiana had a question on, on sort of the integration of research and, and teaching. Tatiana, can I ask you to come in? I'm, I was muted. Uh, my question is, um, I wonder how you integrate and how your research informs your teaching. And the reason I'm asking is that strategic management is relatively new to me. I came with master's degree in economics and PhD in political science into international business and strategic management. I got my degrees from Penn State University. And uh, I started to teach strategic management at Haskane School of Business, and it's um, relatively new. So um, I want to, I guess, inform my teaching with research, and I wonder if there are better ways to do that. Oh boy, I wish I had advi good advice for you. I, I didn't know much about strategy when I came into this field, right? The only thing I knew was like Michael Porter, right? So, all right, so I could teach one week of strategy. Um, you know, and I knew something about transactions costs. So I started out teaching that, trying to think, what could I tell the students about something I knew, right? Um, but then I got thrown in the big core MBA course and got told to teach Mintzberg and Waters <laughs> delivered emergent strategies. And that was really, well, that was interesting. Um, so, man, I just read like crazy, you know, to try and find out what the heck are, is all this stuff. And then I talked to as many colleagues as I could to get teaching ideas. But that's just sort of the basics, right? But like in terms of bringing your research in, so... For me, I was able to do that either with a few sessions in the core required class or an elective. So I taught a class several years ago to the MBA students, uh, an elective on market entry and growth. And basically that was a class on dynamic capabilities, um, except I didn't call it that. And, you know, and I really, you know, I wasn't straight up teaching them dynamic capabilities. I had them read half of the early Tease Pisano and Schumann paper, which is fairly accessible to MBAs. But I, I picked a bunch of topics, uh, you know, in terms of how do firms enter, you know, in cases and, but it was motivated by my research. So it's not like a strict translation of the research, but it's motivated by it. So for the electives, I do that. And also if I had some choice in the core where I had a couple of sessions, you know, that I could add, even if I was teaching with other people, you know, then I would try and have it motivated by my research, you know? And so, you know, market entry and growth, I mean, dude, that's my whole research, you know, stream, right? So that gives me, it's not just dynamic capabilities, it's resource redeployment, it's vertical integration, I mean, you name it, right? I could teach all that stuff. So I was able to think of a topic where, for a course, where I could put in a bunch of stuff I was interested in, and at least my research would inform what I taught them, even if I wasn't like 
taking my research and plopping it down in front of the student. Tony, can I follow up on that? Do you ever see the classroom as a good place to sort of almost test drive some of the ideas that you would pursue in research, right? You, you're teaching a course on deconstructing Apple, and I'm sure that, you know, so much of what you've done in your own research complies to that, but perhaps there are many things that come to mind as you're teaching that you haven't yet researched, and then you can, you can use that, um, you know, to see how it resonates with, with students who have themselves some, some work experience to see whether it needs to be pushed forward in research. Yeah, I haven't tried to do that. Some of my colleagues have done that uh, and really like doing that. Um, I think Giovanni Gavetti would be the, the poster child for this. Uh, he likes to take his ideas about cognition and take them to the students and see how they work. Um, I, I, I'm more the other way around. I take my research and bring them to the students and it's an interesting conversation, but I have not yet gotten ideas for new things to try mm. and maybe i'm just stubborn but i'm pretty sure my ideas are relevant i might not know the exact exact context right like maybe the students can tell me other contexts where they're relevant or some context i hadn't thought about where they're actually not relevant right so it's like the boundary conditions for my ideas that's what i get from the students um, and that is actually helpful that is actually helpful Heather, you'd like to ask Connie about SMJ, getting more involved with SMJ or other journals, top journals. Yeah, sure. So first, thanks, Connie, for your comments on contributing to a body of research. I think this has been really interesting. Um, I'm trying to also ask a more practical question because I know there's junior scholars and PhD students who are listening here. And so I'm just wondering from all your years at SMJ, if you have any advice for, for uh, junior colleagues who want to get more involved at SMJ. And also just from the reviews that you've seen, if you have any specific advice um, as junior scholars are you know, writing these, just how to do them in a way that's helpful to AEs, helpful to editors, uh, just more reflections on that if you uh, are willing. Oh yeah, of course. So, and, and we have several editors here <clears throat> of SMJ, including Heather's here, I think Min Wan's here, um, probably some others I'm missing. Um, so you can ask them too, Jile. Um, obviously. So, um, you know, it's not just SMJ. All right. I mean, there are a lot of journals in our field, right? And there are a lot of really good journals in our field. So the question is how to get more involved. Well, you can volunteer services, but I mean, you know, if you sort of emails that come over the transom are less helpful than, you know, if you know someone who knows someone who's an editor at a journal, that helps to volunteer your services. And the really critical thing is if you get asked to do a review, do it, all right? That's how you get on editorial boards. You get on editorial boards by doing good reviews, right? Um, and even that's how you get to asked to do more than one review, right? And so it, it, it really comes to the question of what's a good review, really? You know, and that's what you asked me about. So what's a good review? So I remember, so I will tell you something that all editors know, all seasoned editors know, that the more junior the colleague, the harsher the review. This is like a truth, all right? So, and I remember writing these, 
obnoxious reviews when I was younger. Maybe obnoxious is the wrong word, but picky, you know, this is all bad. It needs to be done better, you know, and okay. So this is all well and good, but you want to look and see like, what's the core of what the author's trying to do? And try and say something positive to begin with, right? You know, and then try and give some constructive advice. And if you think there are things that are just simply, you know, you know, not acceptable, then you can say so. But you, the tone really matters of the review. Instead of this is all trash, right? Say, look, I think this is a fundamental problem. Here's why. You know, a very factual, matter of fact, but clear statement. And being clear that you think it's a fundamental problem, right? And also calibrate what are the fundamental problems and what are the potentially fixable? Um, <clears throat> and then sometimes you might actually get a paper you think is fixable. So, you know, to, that would be the tone of the review, even if you think there are problems. And the other thing I would really urge you to do is not do, please do not put your opinion about the paper in the review, right? You do not want to tie the editor's hands. There is always an opportunity to write a note to the editor about what you think, right? And you can, oh, you can always put your recommendation for reject or accept or revision. There's always a box for that, right? That does not need to go in the review. I really, really, that the review is not the place to give your overall opinion on the paper. The review is for your feedback. So. Switching to sort of this big discussion between phenomenon-driven and theory-driven, Thomas has a question on that specific topic. Hi, uh, thank everyone. Thank you, Connie, for being here. Um, my question is really simple. So what is your advice in terms of pursuing phenomenon-driven versus theory-driven research, especially if you're interested in contexts that are not, that are interesting outside the U.S.? So social entrepreneurship or, um, any type of state-owned enterprises, something that's more interesting, maybe in Europe, Asia, or Latin America? Yeah, um, let me answer that without reference to where, something interesting. Um, <clears throat> I do think there are themes that get more uptake in different parts of the world, but um, I, I think all these questions are relevant to strategy, regardless of where there's more uptake. Um, so I think, so this notion of asking research questions is something that <clears throat> I think our field hasn't come to terms with yet. In other fields, it's really like that's how they do research. You go to economics, they're not posing hypotheses in most papers. They're asking a well-informed question. And, and part of the reason for this is the, um, <clears throat> the theory, say in economics, is much more narrow, right? So it's really clear what the research question is right because there's this very narrow you know the fairly well understood you know set of literature and so then you don't need to pose a hypothesis it's really obvious what you should be doing you don't even need to pose right out a question so um so then we come to strategy and how do you do this right how do you do research that might investigate a phenomenon or pose a question so that the simple version of this is well if you have a setting where there's not clear theory right? That's the most obvious way to say, well, I'm going to pose some well-informed questions. I mean, they can't just, I'm not a big fan of what I call brute empiricism, where you just take a data set and march, you know, 
apply a bunch of analyses and say, look what I found. I'm like, well, why should I care, right? You know, tell me upfront what's some of the theory we already know, what kind of phenomenon, what kind of research findings empirically have there been, right? So you at least motivate the question. But I think the easy thing is where there's not clear theory, right? Or not clear enough theory, right? You know, where you don't want to feel like you're pulling a rabbit out of a hat and saying, aha, I have a theory and I have a context. And I'm going to put them together, <laughs> you know? So, you know, that's, that's the most obvious route in to this kind of research. Um, I actually, you know, I go out on a limb and say, I personally would like to see more question-based research, even when there is some theory, right? Instead of like being forced to gin up a hypothesis, right? Um, but I'm probably in the minority of the field. So I would say for question-based research, if you wanna get your paper published, um, the easiest route in is to use it when there's a new phenomenon or when there's a phenomenon, it doesn't be new, that hasn't been as investigated in different settings, right? Different countries, different time periods where it's not clear how the theory, you don't have a clear prediction. And then you have to really justify it up front in the paper. You actually have to tackle that head on. Here's why we're using this approach. So that people don't say, where's the theory? Because that is the knee-jerk reaction, unfortunately. And, um, and some journals, there are some journals, if you take that approach, where you can't send your paper because they require <coughs> theory, testing theory. Some journals even require new theory, which I'm really not a fan of. But some journals just simply require that you test theory. And so you, you, you know, but SMJ doesn't require that. Org science doesn't require that. Category management discoveries obviously does not require that. Um, so there are really good journals that where you can send question and phenomenon-based research. MK, feel free to jump in with your question. Uh, hi, uh, this is MK uh, Chin uh, at Indiana University. Hi, Connie, good to see you. Uh, hey. Thanks for you know, sharing your insights. Uh, this has been a great discussion. Uh, I have some uh, questions uh, about uh, your thought on uh, dynamic managerial capability research. Uh, so, well, I, I'm just curious uh, of, of your thought on the potential of uh, you know some future research you know uh, on dynamic manager capabilities. Do you see more you know challenges or or the room you know for making you know uh, more uh, contributions or because my understanding of uh, this you know. Uh, 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 stream of research is mainly based on conceptual papers, uh, and uh, I, I think it's more, you know, because of you know difficulties in collecting data, you know, about uh, you know capturing, measuring, you know, uh, seizing, and uh, you know reconfiguration and sensing uh, those uh, stages. Uh, so I'm just cu you know curious about your general thought on the you know potential of this stream of research. Do you think you, I mean we know enough about this? The field has already you know established you know good you know, framework here, or do you feel like there is, you know, more, um, you know, uh, steps to be done or room to be, you know, filled? Um, yeah, so that would be my question. So I would agree with your assessment that most, maybe not all, but most of the research is conceptual and theoretical. Um, 
in part, maybe, I, I don't know how much of the reason is because it is difficult to measure these capabilities. Um, which, um, it's probably a contributing factor, right? Um, I also think that, you know, people who are really steeped in dynamic capabilities tend to be more conceptually oriented. Um, and, you know, so it's sort of a chicken and egg problem. Um, I, I do think, um, also, a lot of people who are interested in dynamic capabilities tend to be qualitative researchers, conceptual and qualitative research. So I actually think there is an opportunity, more opportunities, qualitative empirical research to try and unpack some of these concepts and what's driving them. Um, and, um, you know, I have not nailed the how to measure impair, you know, quantitatively problem. Um, I had a paper with Philip Meyer Doyle and Sun Ki Lee where we tried to get at this and it just, we couldn't tease it out much. So we, <laughs> it got taken out of the paper and it's now in the discussion and conclusion. Well, in future work, <laughs> maybe we could think about this, you know? So um, I, I don't know what the solution is. I'm, what, I'm counting on you guys, anyone who's interested to come up with some clever research design <laughs> You know, I, I hate to say this, but, um, you know, things like exogenous shocks, where you might actually be able to tease out what it would do to might manage your capabilities and then use that as sort of a proxy for way of getting at the extent to which these managerial capabilities are having an effect, rather than trying to teach it, tease out, well, this is sensing, this is seizing, this is reconfiguring. I think that's a very difficult task empirically because they're, they all go together. Um, and, you know, sensing and, you know, re it's a big cycle with tons of feedback loops. So I actually not sure that's as helpful. And even if you go the route that I like, which is, you know, human capital, social capital cognition, those also are linked, right? And a little hard to unpack. Although I think unpacking the social capital from the others is easier. Um, but again, I would look for things where you can, or even comparing settings where one is going to likely to push the capability, impact of capabilities in a different direction than the other. That, that's where I might go, rather than trying to dig into the details, which would be really hard to unpack empirically. Thank you. Natalia, and then Asim. Thanks so much. And Connie, it's great to see you. And I didn't recognize you because your hair has gotten so long. So I'm like, who is that graduate student? <laughs> As we're all dreaming of our next haircut. My question is, how much room do you see for, how much need do you see for an intellectual history of the field as something we teach our PhD students in the spirit of this cumulative knowledge? Yeah. And this is inspired in part by Tatiana's question where, you know, in the classroom, I tell my MBA students that, you know, what they think of as private equity and new and shiny was leveraged buyouts in the 80s. Yes. <laughs> right? And I use words like cash cow in my class. And I don't know that there is a space in which we do that with doctoral students. Uh, yeah. So that's, A, I think it's a great idea to have something like that. Um, I think that, you know, when the field was early, people, it was well understood, right? And, and it was a smaller field too. Um, but, you know, we don't go, I don't know how much 
in the strategy courses that are taught, the base ones in, in PhD programs, some of the ba you know early history gets taught of some of these ideas, right? The BCG matrix, for example, right? And, you know the, you know like where cat what's a star, right? For example, what's you know it's a cash cow, you know. And some of these were quite managerial frameworks, but you know they are the basis for the field. Um, so there, there's that history, right? Of just the progression of ideas. Um, and I think, you know, there's always a tendency in any academic field to concentrate on what's like new and shiny, um, you know, forget about some of the history. And some of us have always bemoaned this a little. So the other part of it is the history of the field in terms of its intellectual heritage, right? And I think that's really important because strategy is an interdisciplinary field. It's incredibly difficult to keep a field interdisciplinary and not pull off to the disciplines, right? And without something to hold it together, you know, you will, we will end up being a, 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 a field of bad economics, bad sociology and bad psychology. And then we will have no reason to exist. All right, I'm gonna put that really bluntly. And I'm always worried about it um, because I think there's value in having interdisciplinary field. That's why I left economics. Economics doesn't look stuff the way in the way we do in strategy and they don't learn things and they don't know how firms operate, pure and simple, you know? Um, and I'm not, it's not clear to me they ever will. You know, they will pick off some things, same with sociology. Um, you know, so there's contributions from those fields and it's worth reading some of the literature. But so maybe some of the heritage of the history of the field and what makes it unique is really, we need some way to pass that on. And also, you know, I got converted. You know, I, I was a willing convert from economics, you know, but I got converted. I, got, I, I was basically told you have to be in the field of strategy. You know, you can't be an economist and read all this stuff and figure out how to talk to this audience. Um, and I think that's really critical, you know, particularly as some schools are bringing pe more people in from these fields. Those fields have gotten um, what I would call more disciplinary than they used to be. So, um, and so we have a bigger challenge. So maybe having some history of not just the ideas, but also the evolution of the field and what makes it a field, it, it strikes me as important. Asim. Um, thanks, Susie. Uh, Connie, always a, always a pleasure. Um, I guess, um, you know, not to take away from your empirical work, but I mean, as someone who's written some of, I think, the most exciting seminal theory pieces in the last 20 years in our field, uh, and I, I mean, I, I would put them in, my, in the chat, but it would basically blow up the chat, so I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> So I, I'm just curious on your take on sort of the differences between writing, you know, pure theory papers versus empirical papers. What are the pros and cons of doing that? What are the challenges of doing that? Uh, just kind of how do you think about sort of theory papers as just theory papers as opposed to, uh, you know, um, empirical pieces? Yeah. So first of all, thank you for those very kind words. Um, um, so I think what we're talking about here is conceptual, 
theory papers, right? I mean, I've used a little math in my papers. If I could have one paper where the reviewers and editor made me take the math out because they said, look, the idea is intuitive. We don't need the audit trail. I, I kept the graphs in. I just insisted I needed something. But the real issue is how to write these conceptual papers. It's one thing to write a math paper. Those ideas tend to be fairly narrow. You know, there you need, you know, it needs to be interesting and clear and, you know, contribute something. But the conceptual papers, boy, those are hard to write. Uh, they're hard to write because A, there's lots of things you can't nail down, right? And B, it's really hard to communicate some of these ideas and words it just this is like so that other people understand what's in your head it's incredibly difficult um so our first piece of advice is keep it as simple as possible right something complicated there's going to be too many feedback loops too many loose ends you know um so try and nail it down to the core idea you know writing conceptual paper is with so many things going on is really difficult. And a simpler idea is all else equal will have more impact, right? Because people can remember it. You know, why do people remember sensing, seizing, and reconfiguring? Because it's simple, right? And it resonates, right? You know, um, so I think that's a really key thing. The other thing is get feedback you know, from people, what is not clear, you know, and take the review process as a positive, you know, they're, the reviewers are telling you what doesn't make sense, right? You may think it makes perfect sense, but they don't. <laughs> There's probably some truth to that, right? So I think it's, this is simple, clear, you know, and, and then try and answer as many questions as you think people are going to have. Like when people give you feedback on the paper and they have all these questions go, okay, I have to figure out a way to deal with these questions in the paper, right? Um, they're hard, it's really hard to write. It's really hard to write. And I think um, feedback is really critical. Connie, Tim has a question. Just as he's taking a sip of his coffee, I'm going to call on him to ask his question about corporate purpose. Yeah, this this is a little bit um, off the track, but given your um, figurehead role in the field, you know this topic of corporate purpose and what should our objective function be is is coming to the fore, you know, even more than uh, a decade ago. Um, it has implications for our empiricism. You know, what should our dependent variable be, for example? So I'm just curious about your thoughts on this. Is this a worthwhile uh, pursuit for the division? Um, who do you look to as leading seminal thinkers on the topic? Um, those sorts of things. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this lately, about corporate purpose, because, you know, it's all tied up with the you know, it's got two parts to it. One's it's got the sort of social purpose part, right? And two, it's got the motivating the organization part, you know, like having people care. And so I think it's been coming up on our research agenda. And I think it's partly been coming up because of the real world, right? You know, more and more people care more. And if you think about the history of corporate purpose, like, so, I mean, we could go back to the 1800s and the early 1900s. What the heck corporate purpose was there? And, you know, like, 
you know, bloodying the union workers or people are trying to unionize. It's not like our wonderful corporations were all full of corporate purpose, all right? So, I mean, maybe we need a little historical reboot here, right? So then you go, okay, well, what, when, what was the heyday of corporate purpose in some sense? In the US, I think it was after World War II, right? This was until, you know, the 60s or 70s, right? This was a period of huge economic growth, right? And where the corporations, you know, they built, you know, they made, they had company towns from before. Some of those were quite exploitative, like the mills, you know, we have in New England. Um, but, you know, like General Motors, you know, building up Minneapolis, for example, right? Because you sort of, your goals are aligned with the community and you had the slack, right? You weren't under this tight profit constraint. Right, so it's kind of win-win. Your shareholders did well because there's growth. You can help the community, which helps gives you educated workers and a pool, and you know, and it all works well when everything's growing, right? So now we have a situation where that you know the world's more competitive. There's a lot more tensions economically. We're not in a high growth era in the U.S., right? And this issue of like where the core and and some people attribute the lack of corporate purpose to the rise of finance, the financial, you know, community. I don't know what the cause is, but I think it's coming back up on the agenda. And I actually think companies are having to think more about this as a result. Uh, it's sort of gone, it went by the wayside. Um, and I, when I think about corporate purpose, I, I like to see I'd like to see much more thought about, well, what, what do we mean by that specifically? And what are the benefits and costs of this, right? And there's no free lunch. I'm enough of an economist to know this, okay? So I, that's what I'd like to know. I'd like to go beyond exhortations of, oh, we need corporate purpose and feel good and you know, notions that this is win-win or not win-win. We have people on both sides of the aisle shouting at each other. Um, can we actually think about what this is, what it means, and, you know, then think about, and then look at what are firms doing, right? I always go to what are firms doing, right? So I do think it's an important agenda. I have been thinking a lot more about it. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll do research on it, but it is actually something I think is, is not receiving as much sort of what I call sustained deep academic attention. Thank you. Connie, one, one last question from Dennis, and then I wanna give you the heads up that we have a lightning round of a few questions very quickly towards the end and we'll, we'll end on that. So Dennis. Yeah, hi, can, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you perfectly. Okay, sorry, I don't know why my cam isn't working today, uh, but I'll make it very quick. Um, I'm working on a paper on um, bot governance and agency theory. Connie, my question to you is, I would like to know uh, your take on uh, the application of um, dynamic capability on, on boards because we are dealing with uh, resource base and the theory and um, yeah, how, how do you look at that um, with, with board? Well, 
I mean, a few people have thought about, I don't know how many papers are published about the dynamic capabilities of board members and uh, manageable resources of board members. Um, so I think, um, you know, that would be the way I would think about it, but that just comes out of my interest in research. Um, you know, there, there are some papers suggesting we need to think, I don't know, I saw something recently, I don't remember where that, um, you know, you can't monitor as an agent without having capability, right? I mean, you give me some information as a monitor, but I don't have the capacity to figure out what that means and provide advice, it's not much good. So I would actually look at the interaction of the capabilities and the monitoring. Okay, thank you. All right, Connie, are you ready? These are, uh, you know, Crook Samina deserves all the credit and all the blame for putting wonderful Media Scholars participants through, through a lighting round of questions, but here we go. What is your favorite place you've ever visited or traveled to? Oh, geez. Uh, Paris. <laughs> Paris. When you're not reading strategy scholarship, do you read fiction or nonfiction? Uh, probably nonfiction. Nonfiction. What superpower would you rather have? Invisibility, flight, or reading minds? Oh, reading minds, even though it'd be <laughs> really scary. Reviewers' minds, first and foremost. <laughs> if you could have dinner and conversation with one deceased past person from the historical past, who would that person be? No, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and what do you do to relax, unwind, or recharge? I go jogging every day. Those are all the questions. Uh, I have one more, actually, if you don't mind me spending the last two minutes on this. How does somebody from California become uh, sort of a true believer? Well, what do you call people from New Hampshire? <laughs> New Hampshire, right? Yeah. I don't know. You know, task turn New Englanders. <laughs> what do you call people from New Hampshire? <laughs> How do you do that? How do you do that? Oh, it's How a trick. Yeah, but it was not the first time I've lived in the cold, right? So I went to, you know, went from California to Yale, right? And um, I remember one day, um, you know, I got a warm coat and all that, you know. Um, but I remember one day it had warmed up to, I don't know what, it was maybe 40 degrees. And there's a little green outside of the uh, SOM building there. And it was a pretty new building. It was really pretty. And it, the grass was no longer snow covered. I couldn't figure out why no one was out there. Everyone was inside in the cafeteria. I thought this was the strangest thing. So I sat down my coat and I sat on the grass for a while and I read and it was great. You know, it was warm. And um, I somebody told me later that my friends had seen me out there and thought, what the heck is Connie doing out there? And then someone said, oh yeah, that's California Connie. <laughs> You don't realize you don't sit out on the grass when it's 40 degrees. So um, I've adapted over time, uh, but you know, just adapt. It's a slow process. I, you know, I like snow. I, you know, I ski, you know, I, you know, I, you gotta get out. You gotta hike in the snow. You got snowshoes. Um, you know, it's just a little long up here. That's my only complaint. It's a month too long, <laughs> winter. 
Connie, we're incredibly grateful for your time and of course for, for all your insights and for sharing your, your history with us. Um, we look forward to seeing you in person, hopefully before long. And thank you everyone for joining us today. See you next time. Thank you guys for having me. It was really a pleasure. It's wonderful to see so many people, people I know, people I don't know, you know, and thanks for hosting me. It was really fun. It was really fun. Thank you, Connie. Bye everyone. Okay, take care everybody. <sighs>